Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Extra Serving, a podcast by Nation's Restaurant News. I am your host, Holly Petrie, and I'm joined by two of my colleagues. My name is Sam Okus. I'm editor-in-chief of Nation's Restaurant News. And I'm Joanna Fantosi, senior editor for Nation's Restaurant News. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Sam, you had air conditioning issues all week, so I'm glad that you are now cool and and here for the podcast. Cool as a cucumber, ready to pod. <laughs> all right. Oh man, if only people could have seen your dance, that would have been really great. <laughs> <laughs> I went nine days without air conditioning. It deserves a dance. Thank you very much. It I live in North Carolina. Day. I don't know if I've mentioned that before, but it's hot here. So nine days without air conditioning is not my favorite. Good. So we're getting prime cold Sam right now for this call. That is Oh yeah. Wonderful. I am I am premium Sam. I am cool. Oh yeah. Ready to go. Very happy. That's that's what we like to hear when we're talking about restaurant news. We really like to hear that you are cool as a cucumber. Yep. So we can start with some of the big news that Joanna wrote about this week that Sweetgreen acquired Spice, which is a robot backed restaurant company. Um, I mean, what do we think about the acquisition? Does that mean that Sweetgreen that's already kind of been pushing at technology, are they going to go more into robot powered? Are they going to use this technology in their units? Can they even do that? Or are they just doing it to kind of swipe up competition in Boston? Uh, It certainly sounds like they're going to be uh, going in that direction, honestly. Um, that's what they said when they when they announced the acquisition of Spice. And I think that it makes sense, especially since uh, as someone who has been to Sweetgreen, though not in a while because uh, thanks to the pandemic, no more commute. But um, I used to love going to Sweetgreen and the line would get so backed up, especially in kind of busier neighborhoods. Um, and it just, it could definitely use some more help. And I think that having some automation on the line instead of just uh, instead of just relying on people power um, will definitely speed things up for them. Yeah, you know, Spice when it came out a couple years ago when it first opened, I thought it was kind of a novelty. Um, you know, it was developed by some MIT grads. You know, there's this whole show about the robots cooking the food, you know, dropping the ingredients and cooking the food, giving it to the customer. And, um, it's fun to watch. It's, it's, it was, you know, a cool idea. I've never had the chance to, um, visit a spice before, but, you know, they also had this investment from Danielle Belud, which sort of legitimized it out of the gates. And I was curious about that because, robots and chefs are sort of a strange pairing, right? I mean, you would think chefs are sort of opposed to this idea of automation and robots and food service. But here we were with this, one of the greatest chefs of our time who was acknowledging that this was kind of like the restaurant of the future. And and now, I mean, that's only more so has automation become a part of the conversation uh, because of labor challenges and because of, you know, the fact that it's just getting cheaper and more available. So, I think it's interesting because Sweetgreen's always been ahead of the pack when it comes to technology. And this seems to signal that they want to do that with automation as well, that they want to be leading the way and, um, and really be, be at the leading edge of technological innovations. And yeah, I, I think if anybody can make that work, it will be them. Look, they, you know, they're, they filed for an IPO. It's going to go gangbusters. I'm sure they were, they raise a ton of money. Um, you know, they're, they're the darlings of fast casual. So if anybody can do that and and can, um, put the money behind, it's going to be sweet cream, but I, I will be interested to continue to watch as, 
you know, does automation do these kind of robots, the human element, taking out the human element of it, is it something that customers really embrace? And is it something that chefs and, and, you know, restaurant folks who profess to be really oriented about doing better for their people, their teams, is, is it better to replace people with robots? I don't know. I don't know the answer to all that, but it'll be interesting to watch. Well, and especially because Sweetgreen, like, makes itself known as it, we're the chef-driven fast casual. We're, uh, they partner with chefs. They have all these chef salads. They talk about their local ingredients. It's it's a very people-focused. So I'd be really curious to see how they're going to wind up putting these robots into, into the daily operations there because whenever I go into a sweet green, it's very personalized. You ask questions. It's, it's not really a, an experience where you just go and you want the same thing every day like you do at a Chipotle where you can just go and you don't need to talk to anybody. Um, so I'm, I, I don't know if I think that they're almost too small to, to be in this place to be automating because there's still people still walk in with questions. They still walk in and don't know what the concept is, but um, cause they're still under 200 units. We were talking about this the other day. Like they're, they're, we think they're everywhere, but they're not, they're still a pretty small company. So it could help them grow, but I don't know if it'll detract from their brand equity. If I were, if I were to theorize, uh, I, I think then this is based on like no information from the company whatsoever. So I'm just really theorizing here, but they probably want to branch into some, I mean, we saw with the rollout of their drive-in drive-through location that they introduced last year that they're willing to take some big swings when it comes to real estate and kind of rethinking the model. But also when you think about their outpost, uh, which was setting up these, uh, this operation within office buildings and, you know, transporting meals to the office. You guys know more about this because you guys are in New York. So you understand how all that works, but it's been forever. Outpost, I completely forgot about those. That's yeah. So they, they had, and they had like a presence and I want to say like a thousand, like a thousand places or something with their outpost. And I don't know if we do a fact check on this podcast, but somebody's probably gonna need to do that. Anyway, point is, is that like, you know, you could theorize that by getting automation, what that does is actually unlock some real estate potential because they will probably continue to invest in their typical footprint and then more in this drive through drive-in. But maybe if you have a small footprint where you don't have the opportunity for the traditional make line, maybe you, maybe that's where you do the automation. I don't know. That's just a theory, but I, I know that that's, seem to be the direction they want to go in is like, let's rethink what the footprint of the sweet green looks like and open up some doors to where we could grow into. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Um, and I, I think that no matter what this means, given the fact that they just filed their, that they just went public, I think that this won't be the last acquisition that we hear of from sweet green. I think that there'll be more down the line. And I don't necessarily think that this means that they'll be replacing all their all of their people uh, with with robots, I think that it could just be a way to kind of alleviate some of those labor stresses. Interesting to like, I finally get to talk about what robots could mean in food service, because we've been talking about it as sort of this larger issue of like, what will it mean? What will it mean for labor? And now we're finally seeing a company make an acquisition and maybe start to use it. So all of these what ifs are, are going to be coming to fruition soon. But right now we're all just like, we don't know what anybody's going to do because this is the first really big company to really invest in robots, not just like um, automated delivery. 
So some other big news this week was a lot of executive announcements. Um, we don't need to analyze them because we can't really analyze uh, these hiring decisions. Um, but we saw a new CEO at Pizza Hut that happened today, or president, and then a new president at Burger King. McDonald's made all these C-suite changes. It was in like five days that all of these people, I always feel like there's something in the air that it's that someone just needs to make all of these changes at once. It's not even the end of a quarter. Uh, it's bizarre. So, I mean, is there something in the air? Is there anything in, in these exec changes that you guys think is particularly interesting? Um, I think it was interesting. And Sam, you mentioned this before that a couple of these folks are from outside the restaurant industry, uh, particularly when I wrote about uh, Aaron Powell as being uh, named Pizza Hut division CEO today. I thought it was interesting that he came from the Kimberly Clark Corporation, which makes paper goods. Um, so I thought that was a little bit of an, an unusual choice, especially that it seems like it, it seems like a lot of the previous um, a lot of the previous executive changes had come from within similar restaurants within the industry. Yeah, I think that companies, well, you know, companies like Yum, I mean, you often see folks rise up the company and you have sort of have the company man become um, CEO. And I think McDonald's, especially, that's like long been the case there. And, um, you know, to, to not only go outside the company, but go outside the industry is, that's a big chance you're taking. But if I were to try to guess at what's in the air right now with executive changes, um, I feel like we hit on this a couple of weeks ago too, but you know, it's, it's such a season of transition and going all the way back to, you know, all of these stories out there about how many millions of Americans are leaving their jobs. And I'm not saying that necessarily is definitely the case of executives who are, you know, suddenly getting the itch to move on. But, you know, that thing that's in the air right now is that COVID turned all of our lives upside down and, and thrust everybody into the season of transition. And, naturally that comes with a lot of turnover, um, even at the executive ranks. And so, um, you know, Pizza Hut's filling a role that's been open for a few months, you know, the previous CEO left, I believe in April. And um, so it's, it's just interesting that I think a lot of companies are probably setting up for the future right now. You got to get some of these positions right, because despite the fact that we're still struggling with pandemic and with Delta, there's real reason to believe that the coming years will be boomtown. And you want to make sure that your the hires are right, the people are in the right, you know, the right people are in the right places and that the brands are set up for success now. Um, so that once the boomtown comes, you know, you're not going into transition right at that premier opportunity. The boomtown. I've never heard that expression before. Oh yeah. Trademark Sam Ocus right here. Ooh. Not at all. What are we talking about? Wasn't there a, isn't there a show called boomtown? That is what am I thinking of? Maybe it's a book. I don't know. Boomtown. Come on. That's a thing. Do we have to get into our conversation about jumping the shark again? Because <laughs> I just feel like I'm not that old that I know all these phrases that you guys don't. Come on. There's like five Jeez. years between the three of us. So it's really not. Hold on. We need to ask Joanna. Do you know the phrase jump the shark? Yes, of course I do. And it comes from. <sighs> Thank you. Wait, I used to know this. It comes from MASH. Is it MASH? Nope, nope, nope. Don't tell her, Holly. Come on. You got this. It's, no, it's a, it's an old show. Literally that they jumped over a shark. Was it like, I don't remember. I'll give you a hint. Henry Winkler. Oh, it's from happy days. Yeah. I was it was the Fonz jumped song. over a shark. My era, I think. No matches earlier. Never mind. I'd never even heard it. Yeah, I have though. no idea. Yeah. 
Well, before we jump this shark, did I use it right? <laughs> Too late. <laughs> um, we need to talk about something that has most definitely jumped the shark, but is somehow still in the headlines, which is the chicken sandwich wars. I don't understand it. They're still going on. Taco Bell just made this big, they released all of these like debate posters about their new chicken taco, whether it's a taco or a sandwich, because um, it's their fried chicken entree into the world of fried chicken sandwich wars. And I just, how are we still doing this? This was before the pandemic. I, it's wild to me. People are going to, if people are going to keep eating chicken sandwiches, then restaurants are going to keep developing chicken sandwiches. And there must be some proof that this trend will not die. And of course, there's proof that this trend will not die. It's in the sales. It's in all these co companies going gangbusters. And so I am a little surprised Taco Bell's so late to the game on this one. It does feel like if you're, if you're jumping on this bandwagon now, then um, you missed it by about a year. Um, but at the same time, you know, maybe they didn't have the same kind of pressure to get into this because they're not, you know, really a traditional chicken company. So, um, yeah, I, it's clever what they're doing, I guess. But from a marketing perspective, how do you carve out your own niche at this point in the chicken sandwich wars? You know, how do you how do you get people to care that you have a chicken sandwich launch? And, you know, this is a, a nice shot at it. I but. Yeah, I, I, we see this all the time because this is what we do. So maybe it's biased, but I just feel like enthusiasm has probably waned a little bit, at least on the marketing front. Sales, look, chicken sandwiches. I mean, they're in demand. People love chicken sandwiches, so that'll always, uh, that will always um, be fine. But, uh, but yeah, from a marketing perspective, it's it's interesting timing. I don't think it really matters necessarily that it's old hat just because it's Taco Bell, and it seems like lately everything. Uh, that they put out seems to turn into cult favorite gold. Um, I think that it, people cared so, so, so much when they took the potatoes off the menu during the pandemic. And it just seems like they inspire such uh, fervor in people. So um, so maybe that, maybe it won't be the case. Maybe people will be kind of meh about the chicken, but there's, but there's good reason to believe that I think that they will do well for them. By the way, who's going to be the arbiter of of whether or not a, ta a, a chicken taco is actually a sandwich? I feel like the conversation, this happens all the time around hot dogs, right? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Do we need to figure that out? Does that need to have an answer? Does somebody need to be the arbiter? Is that arbiter to us? Do we need to decide right here and now? Do we get to be the authority on that? Because I just feel like that's something that pops up every now and then. And it's like, who cares? Does somebody, do, does it doesn't matter if a hot dog's a sandwich? Well, that's yeah, their whole yeah, marketing campaign. Right. So sandwich? I guess we're going to we're going to find out. Yeah, they're going to get the answer and that's going to be that. It's so interesting because I feel like I feel like before the pandemic, the only two chicken sandwiches, at least in the, the Northeast, Sam, I will not uh, talk about your chicken sandwiches. But in the Northeast, I feel like the debate was really between Chick-fil-A or Shake Shack. That was all we had. Right, Joanna, like those were the if you had a chicken sandwich, it was from one of those two places. And now you can go anywhere and the fact that there was even a debate before the pandemic shows that there was a need for more chicken sandwiches, but just put it on the menu. You don't need to have some big marketing campaign around it. That's supposed to be, you know, we're entering, I don't want to see any more headlines that are like, we're entering the chicken sandwich wars. We're all guilty of it because people click on it, but I mean, it's, it's over. Just put a chicken sandwich on the menu. People like chicken. People don't always want to eat red meat. People want to eat chicken, put it on the menu. You don't need to make some big deal about it. Just throw it on. 
that's not how a restaurant with 8,000 locations or whatever Taco Bell has really acts. You know, it's like when you, because how many millions did they probably invest in the culinary development of this? And then you got to get your bang for your buck. Uh, but was what, I, maybe there was a different way you could have gone about it. I mean, yeah, the chicken sandwich wars, that's played out. So I don't know. They have to get their bang for their buck. There you go. Bang for the buck. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, We're rolling it. We got to trademark this whole podcast. <laughs> I did not get that at first, guys. That was oh, well wow. done. Good job. I was going to use a really bad bird pun, but I decided not to, to go into your conversation with duck donuts, Sam. Uh, so you can, that would have been a really bad bird pun. I guarantee <laughs> you to go from Bach to a duck. Um, but so on your, that's the world I live in. I have small children, <laughs> so I do animal noises all the time. What are you talking about? I would have, I would have totally gone with it. Oh my God. So Sam, on your podcast this week, Takeaway with Sam Okus, you had the CEO of Duck Donuts on there. It was a great conversation. It came out on Tuesday. So can you tell us about it? Tuesday night, Wednesday yeah. morning. That's right. Yeah. So Betsy Ham is a CEO of Duck Donuts. Um, you know, it's a brand I've been following personally for several years. Um, Betsy was the COO. She was promoted this past May to the CEO role when um, the founder, Russ, uh, he stepped down. He uh, sold the brand to New Spring Capital, and now he's um, stepped back to just be on the board. Um, but this is a fun brand. Uh, so it's prevalent to me because it's themed on the Outer Banks, which is here in the North Carolina, and this sort of outer banks boardwalk kind of vibe that they have to their brand and um i have one not too far from my house and i talk about it in the conversation with her but this is something where it's a great family friendly experience because you your kids can come and watch the donuts being made it's a lot of fun they have this big basket of rubber ducks that kids just you know i they ask to buy one every time we go in there and so i've got a lot of these rubber ducks in my house and it's a fun experience. And so now they're kind of entering this next phase of growth where Betsy's stepping up into the CEO role. They have this capital partner and New Spring Capital. But what's most interesting about the conversation, I think, is how, you know, this is sort of a, a, a common theme that I've found, which is, you know, we all thought breakfast would just get killed by COVID because of people's not doing their morning co uh, commute. Um, but in fact, a lot of breakfast brands really finding unique ways to survive in this season. And so for Duck Donuts, that was to try to pivot to being less of reliance on the morning day part and more of a sweet treat brand. And so that included releasing milkshakes this year. Um, so anyway, we, we just talk a lot about how they were able to reposition and um, survive in this era where, you know, you don't have people coming in for a dozen donuts to take to the office. So yeah, highly recommend that conversation with Betsy Ham, CEO of Duck Donuts on Takeaway with Sam Ocas, my new podcast. And if you like stories about children, you will love this podcast. Uh, I got some real great insights into uh, <laughs> Sam's life at home on the pod. So it's definitely a good one. <laughs> hey, fellow parents who are listening to this totally understand that when your life revolves around children, then it's basically all you can talk about. So yes, this is my life. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know what? It was still enjoyable, even though I am childless, child-free, however Brett likes to say it. <laughs> <laughs> child-free, yeah. Child-free. All right, Joanna, can you tell us all about this week's interview and what we can expect coming right up? Sure. Uh, so this week's podcast, I spoke with Patrick Conlon, president of Wayback Burgers and upcoming up and coming uh, burger chain um, about their franchise growth and recent success. They've actually done 
uh, quite well um, over the past year in the recovery from, uh, from the height of the pandemic. Um, so yeah, it's definitely an interesting brand to check out. We love a good emerging brand on this podcast. They're really important. So, uh, and definitely stay tuned because we are going to be revealing our hot concepts awards soon. Talk about emerging brands. Um, so stay tuned for that announcement. It's going to be coming up. We're going to have some of them on the podcast as well. So definitely exciting things to look out for with some new and emerging brands. And now here is the interview. To begin then, um, the uh, first half of 2021 was what seemed to be huge for you guys. Uh, can you get a, uh, can you get us caught up on uh, how the first two quarters were for Wayback Burgers and what drove the nearly 40% comps growth? Yeah, um, well, the, the part of it was obviously the in, in 2020, there was a big dive, but um, because of the pandemic, but um, right after that, initial two-week crater, um, we had really started going up. So this year, um, we've just had incredible growth. Um, we're a franchise system, so we're really 100% franchise. And the franchisees and their team members and, and our franchisee um, support staff at our headquarters have done a great job um, in, in uh, working together. And I'm sure you know there's all kinds of supply chain issues and and labor issues, but um, really working through that and uh, delivery has been a big, um, a big factor in the growth. And we had that set up prior um, to the to the pandemic. So, um, and and while um, it was an issue before that, everybody, all the franchisees were very happy to have it. And in really working with a lot of the delivery, the third party delivery partners over the last year and a half, two years um, to, um, you know, they understanding our business and seeing what our pain points were in it and coming to the table to help our franchisees out and really grow that delivery sector. That's been a, uh, a big help in, in that business. The dining rooms um, reopening um, has helped because people do want to have that experience. We're uh, fast casual, so we, wanna, we want our guests to come into the restaurants. And um, um, online ordering and our on our app, you can order through the through our mobile ordering app also. So that has also expanded as some people still don't feel comfortable coming back to the dining rooms, um, but we have that online uh, capability for them to still get the food that they that they crave. So um, all that those technology pieces have helped us. Um, even though um, things were a little crazy this year with, with supply chain, we did come out with um, a couple of uh, LTOs in the first half of the year that did very well. Um, the Impossible Burger, which we had, we had launched right at the beginning of the pandemic as an LTO for about four weeks, five weeks, and then had to shut it down. We re, re, um, relaunched it uh, the first quarter of this year. <clears throat> and um, as an impossible melt and also made it a permanent part of our menu. So that was a, uh, um, a big thing. And then we also, um, part of our, our menu, our core menu are, are um, milkshakes. So if you've never had one, uh, you gotta get one of our milkshakes. It's, uh, 
hand-dipped ice cream, the old-fashioned way, not pulled out of a machine. And we came out with a um, um, chocolate cake shake, is what we called it. And it was a chocolate shake with taking a, uh, a ring ding and cutting it in half. And half of the ring ding was blended into the shake, and the other half was done as a garnish on top uh, with whipped cream. So um, that was uh, very nice as a decadent uh, treat. And um, seems like our, our shake sales, uh, the guests are really looking for that, uh, um, that kind of a treat item. And um, shake sales have, have taken off too, which is a good thing because we always say you can get a Coke anywhere or a drink anywhere, um, but you can't get a great milkshake anywhere. So uh, we really want to uh, push, the, push the milkshakes. And, um, and then the other thing during the pandemic, and then we've continued it into this year, we flipped around the way that we were doing our marketing. Um, before we had done it, uh, the national marketing that we that we had collected that money from the franchisees and and spent it on a national basis, and when the pandemic hit, we we turned it around and and really um, took that money and put it back into the uh, markets where we had locations and franchisees and and did it very hyper local around their restaurant, and um, and they they also contribute money on their on a local level, so. Um, they were very happy about it and it increased the marketing budget um, in in each area where we had a restaurant because the franchisees were contributing. We were taking the national marketing money and dumping it back into their very local market. Um, so more advertising certainly helped in terms of uh, getting the, the brand message out there and getting the guests into the restaurants when, and ordering uh, either in restaurant or on the app or through the delivery services. And, um, and that was, uh, you know, just a, a great success that we've had. For sure. A uh, lot to cover here. But um, I think just to start off, with, like you said, um, of course, like the, a, a large, a big part of the, uh, the growth in 2021 was, you know, kind of growing from that challenging year of, uh, during the, uh, the, uh, the pandemic. Um, so uh, could you kind of compare what you think your growth trajectory is right now in 2021 compared to pre-pandemic in 2019? Um, yeah, where our, our average unit volumes are, um, are much higher than they were in 2019. So it's not just a, a bump over the, um, the pandemic lows of, of 2020. Um, and um, so the sales are, you know, are real increases um, versus just that, um, you know, that, that be, uh, an increase over the, over the low. And it's continuing. Um, it hasn't slowed down. Certainly, the economic stimuluses have helped because uh, there's people out there have more money to spend, um, and and that's a good thing for the restaurant industry as a whole. And and we're seeing that that every time that there is a a stimulus that was put into the economy, that the the sales in the restaurants um, um, jumped up, and it and and continued on on a on a steady. It didn't jump up and then drop down. So um, that's um, that's you know certainly part of the um, the, the increases too. Yeah, and let's talk um, uh, menu innovation. Um, you already mentioned the Impossible Burger that you were able to to bring it back as a melt, and uh, and it went from being an LTO to a permanent menu item. Um, what what is what has been your strategy there in in coming up with new ideas for menu items, and how do you know whether something should should go to LTO status or permanent menu item status? 
Well, we never, we very rarely do we put something um, uh, as a permanent menu item. We will, um, uh, we're, we're a little bit more diverse than your regular, just a, a, a burger and fry place. We, we have chicken, we have cheesesteaks, we have hot dogs. We have the, we have a garden burger and the impossible. Now, some of those items have come um, onto the menu after they were LTOs um, because they sold so well. <clears throat> so that's pretty much the way that we, we do things. We'll, we'll come up with ideations for LTOs and, um, and then if it works well um, and we think it has staying power, then we'll look maybe to keep it on the menu as a permanent item. But we also have to look to take things off the menu because we don't want it to be a, like an old time New York diner menu where you have uh, 150 items and you only do 100 of them well. Um, we're going through that now where, where, um, where next year or um, the end of this year, January of 2022, um, we're going to be taking off uh, probably five or six items um, on the current menu that are slow sellers and, um, and not replacing them really with anything. Um, we'll see if any, any you know, rock stars come out of the LTO lineup that we have next year and um, maybe put those on the on the menu as a permanent item but um, but we're going to get rid of some of the the dead sellers and the slow movers right now yeah, also just sense. to help the kitchen efficiency um, and um, and you know and not clog that up with uh, extra training and and especially with the, the labor issues that are going on there mm -hmm. uh, that makes sense especially since uh especially since supply chain issues also have been have been challenging. So a lot of a lot of folks that are bringing up new menu items and LTOs, sometimes maybe they'll, they're using ingredients that they already have, maybe yeah. um, or kind of spins on things that they already have in the menu. Um, uh, so kind of speaking of those challenges, uh, how have you uh, approached the, uh, the supply chain challenges that the industry has been seeing? Um, I have to tell you, I mean, it, it's been challenging and, and we just had a call this morning with our Franchisee Advisory Council, and um, they're still going on. Um, and you know, I said to them, you know, thank you very much for your patience. You know, it's no fault of theirs, no fault of ours. It's just the world is still upside down. Um, and and that certainly goes into the planning of LTOs because you have a um, you have a great plan and these ingredients, and you and you had samples of them, and you and it, and it worked out, and and you thought it was going to be a big seller, and then when you're ready to pull the trigger, you find out that you can't get that product anymore um, that you had planned on six months ago. So <clears throat> it it's really um, going into this year and and in the future, at least in the very near future, is really looking to make it as simple as possible um, for the LTOs not to plan on bringing in, um, you know, if we're doing a burger, not to plan on bringing in three different or four different items to go on that LTO burger. Um, maybe it's a, a sauce um, and maybe it's two sauces that we can combine in the restaurant. We just did a guacamole burger. Um, so that was the only thing that we brought in for that was the guacamole. Um, but um, it, it's certainly been a challenge and, um, and even our, but our, our regular uh, vendor partners have have done a great job. You know, we've had some hiccups, but we've been with them. Um, all of our main partners are beef supplier and buns and ice cream and um, and and sauce uh, suppliers. We've been with them for a long time, so it really comes down to communication and 
you know, look, I, if you don't have the product, you don't have the product. I can't uh, force you to give me something that you don't have. Um, but uh, as long as we communicate and, and you give me a heads up ahead of time that there's going to be an issue, then we can work around that. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a two-way street and, and everybody knows that there are issues right now in the world. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then it, it kind of brings up creativity challenges in and of itself um, with trying to, I guess, create exciting LTO menu, menu items that, uh, that uh, customers are really looking forward to uh, trying, even, uh, even as um, the, the ingredients are a little bit simpler, maybe. Yeah, I mean, we did a, um, um, we have a product called uh, Barolitos, there's uh, Agos Frescas. And so last year we did a, um, a lemonade in the middle of the pandemic. We already had a, a Minimade lemonade. <clears throat> and we just came up with the idea along with Coca-Cola to take that uh, strawberry Barolitos and put it into a large ice cube tray, uh, like the kind of the size of an ice cube that you would get in a, uh, a bourbon or a whiskey and, um, and drop that into the lemonade. So it was a product that we, two products that we already had in the restaurants and all we had to do was source the ice cube trays and, um, and it went over so well. So this year we did the similar type of thing, but with a tangerine, um, uh, a, a tangerine product instead of the uh, strawberry hibiscus Barolitos and did that as a summertime lemonade this year with that extra large ice cube. So it also made a nice visual because as the, uh, as the ice cube melts and you get that color from the tangerine or the strawberry, it, you know, it, it's, it, it peels off into the lemonade. So, um, yeah. And, and we took the tangerine and we also used, so again, using the same type of uh, the, the same ingredient for double dual purposes, we used that in a milkshake and a, um, a tangerine milkshake we did that uh, tastes like the old time creamsicle. And that and that chocolate cake shake that you mentioned also sort of similar similar vein where it's just you're just sourcing that ring ding, yeah. uh, and and uh, to me that should be on the permanent menu because that sounds really good to me. You'd be surprised at how many. I mean, most of the people in our office are you know thirty somethings, and when I said yeah we get a, a ring ding and they looked at me and they said a what. And I said a ring ding, and half of them didn't know what a ring ding was, which I, which blew me away. Um, so I thought that that was it was funny that they didn't know what a ring ding was, and made me feel very old. <laughs> Thirty something definitely uh, <laughs> remembers them from childhood and likes them. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's a New York thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so besides uh, figuring out uh, menu menu innovation and supply chain challenges, I know that uh, you guys are looking to. Uh, uh, expand particularly uh, to uh, bringing on new franchisees so what is your uh, what's your strategy there well um, since the second half of, of last year and into this year we've had a great run on franchise development and um, it really starts with the current franchisees because if we didn't have a story to tell a, a successful story to tell um, then then we wouldn't um, have franchise development. We wouldn't have new people looking to invest in the system. Um, so that, that validation, we do discovery days. Um, we used to hold them in our office. Now we do them virtually every other week. And that's really the 
the um, franchise prospects first um, uh, first foray into meeting us and every department head comes on and gives a presentation about what they do um, as the support person in that department for the franchise system and um, we've had uh, um, great success um, having people attend those discovery days and then get through the franchise development pipeline and um, they also then speak to existing franchisees and get that validation that um, that they're happy in it and um, and that and that's the feedback that we get and um, in addition to that which we're more proud of or most proud of is that we've had a um, a large number of existing franchisees looking to expand and um, so now we're probably up to about 40% of our system um, as multi-unit franchisees. And we, we always start, we don't sell multi-units at the beginning, multi-unit uh, agreements. We sell them one at a time. And if you, you start off and, and you're doing well in uh, six months, a year from now, we're happy with you, you're happy with us, great, we'll be happy to expand. But, um, and that's the way that we grow. So to get to over 40% and going in that direction is, um, you know, is a great validation that the, that the business model works. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we'd love to expand with existing franchisees, not that we're anti new franchisee, but, um, you know, we'd like, we like both. And, um, one of the other things that we're, that has helped that fuel that growth mode that we're in is we came out with a new design a couple of years ago. Um, and that was the first new design change in 10 years. So it's a very different looking model um, than what we used to have, um, where the kitchen was um, and, and the grill was right up front, typically behind the POS station. Um, so it was very crowded and a, and a difficult, uh, a lot of traffic going on and, and didn't flow very well. So what we did, we, we took the kitchen and moved it behind a glass wall. So you still see the cooking for as the, uh, the guest, you still see the cooking and there's a pass-through wall. So you see the food coming out, but um, it, it alleviated a couple of things. The, um, uh, the smell in the restaurant. Um, so if you sat into the, in the old restaurant and, and everything was being cooked right out front, um, after you sat there and you ate your burgers and fries and you went back to your office, you smelled like a burger and fry. Um, so this is, this is kind of alleviated that. Also, we walk the food out to the um, to the guests' table. We don't uh, call them to pick it up. So, having that cooking station right behind the register, right behind the POS station, we were we were walking that uh, the grease and the out onto the dining room floor, um, which wasn't a, a nice experience for the guests. So we alleviated all of that, and um, just new seating, banquettes. Um, uh, a, uh, a milk, a curved milkshake counter with uh, cool-looking short red leather stools, um, and um, been very well received. And and we have one franchisee um, right now who had one of the old design, and then uh, her and her husband opened up their second location, and that had the new design. And they're both in in Texas, and um, went to visit her uh, about a year ago in her new design. Actually, I, I went a couple of weeks ago too. And I remember her telling me, and this was right after she opened up her new design. She was, and I said, so you're kind of unique because you have one of each. 
you know, what do you like and what don't you like of the new design versus the old design? And she said, all I can say is I don't think I would be doing the business that I'm doing in my new store if I had the old design, just because of the aesthetics. She said it was much more upscale, much more what we were looking for. Um, They're in a more upscale neighborhood and they didn't think that they could have um, achieved the success that they're having in their, in their second location with the new design if they had the old design. So that was uh, great to hear. And then um, when we were down in Texas a couple of weeks ago, we went to visit, I think, four locations. And it was, um, it was fun because all four of them had the new design. So um, as we, every, and everything coming out of the pipe is, is the new design. And then we have a remodel program for the older locations that, um, that tries to take in as many elements of the new design and the colors um, as we can fit into, a, into an older location that makes sense. So as we upgrade the, the older locations and come out with, with newer ones and the, the newer models are, are, are certainly um, proving out that that design um, is, is an upgrade over the, over the older one. And as you are rolling out that new design, um, is there any specifically any new markets that you that you think you want to penetrate or or uh, move into a little bit further? Um, well, I mean, because we're a, a franchise business, it's it happens where the the franchise prospects are coming from. Um, we have a lot of growth right now in Texas and California um, and the Southeast. And while we, it's funny because our headquarters are in Connecticut and we didn't have um, a lot of growth in Connecticut for many years, um, we now have um, three new restaurants going up. One of those are with an existing franchisee. So it's nice to see that homegrown um, uh, growth and, um, and also um, the, um, I was say, in, in Delaware where um, way back started uh, 30 years ago um, a franchisee had a uh, 10-year-old restaurant in Millsboro Delaware and he just moved it from an inline space in a shopping center um, to the next shopping center over that had a freestanding building on a pad that used to be a Hardee's and he moved into there redid it as the new design and his sales are probably um, 30 percent higher than what they used to be in the in the restaurant that he ran 10 years and it's i mean you could throw a stone and hit it um it's that close so it's and he has a drive through window but he hasn't opened up the drive through lane yet so um just uh the new design new location um and um he's very excited and and that's his uh he, he has four restaurants and and he's looking to expand and do more oh, that's impressive for sure it uh, sounds like the new design then is a is a real hit with uh, with both franchisees and customers then. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, okay. Great. I think then that's all the questions I had. Thank you so much for talking to me this afternoon, Patrick. I appreciate it. No problem. Nice to meet you.